0: You know, once he saw the title of this week's sermon, Kevin spent the rest of the week trying to decide what he was going to bring this morning for show and tell. And he was so disappointed to know that this was not his week for show and tell. As we just heard in the passage, it's the Apostle Paul's week for show and tell. You know, I don't know about you, but show and tell was always a highlight for me when I was in elementary school. You know, it's so much better than having to describe that toy that you just got for Christmas when you can actually bring it in and show them. You know, it's so much better after that vacation to be able to bring in some pictures or maybe that overpriced souvenir that you made your parents buy in the gift shop and show it to everyone rather than just tell about your experience. And in the same way, we find that the Apostle Paul is giving us show and tell today. Because as adults, show and tell is still very, very useful. You know, if you've ever been explaining something to someone, or, or trying to explain something, you can see that they're just not getting it. And so what do you say? Well, hold on, let me show you. Let me show you. Because sometimes telling is not enough. We want to see it done. We want to see an application. We want to see, well, what does this look like? Because a picture is worth a thousand words. And that's, what the Apostle Paul is doing today. He's giving us a picture. He's showing us what he has just spent the last chapter or so telling us. You know, it started all the way back in chapter 1. In verse 27, Paul wrote and he said, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And so how do we live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ? Now, before we discuss that, I want to make sure you understand Paul correctly here. Paul is not saying, how do I make myself worthy of the gospel? How do I earn or merit salvation, becoming somehow worthy of salvation in God's eyes? Because, friends, the bad news, the bad news is that none of us are worthy. None of us can merit or earn salvation. None of us are good enough. None of us will ever do enough. Salvation is by grace. It's a free gift that God made possible by the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is the gospel. This is the good news. And friends, if you've come here today, if you showed up here this morning and you've been trying to make yourself somehow worthy of salvation, somehow worthy in God's eyes, worthy of forgiveness, then hear the good news. The good news is that your religious labors can end. Your burden can be lifted. Your guilt can be taken away. Because there's not anything. There's not anything at all that you have done or that you will do that will bring you salvation. It's only God's gift. The free gift that he gives us. The gospel, the good news is that salvation always goes to the unworthy. Do you hear that? The gospel, the good news is that salvation always goes to the unworthy and the undeserving. You know, there's that old hymn that we sometimes sing. It says... Come ye weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. If you tarry, if you wait until you're better, until you're worthy, friends, you're never going to come because you're never going to be worthy. You're never going to be deserving, so come now. Come now, unworthy and undeserving people, and receive the free gift of forgiveness and new life offered by Jesus Christ, who died for our sins and on the third day rose again from death to restore our life. And if you've never received this gift as your own, don't tarry, don't wait until you're better or feel like you've made yourself more worthy or deserving. Come now. I hope that after service you'd talk to me or talk to the prayer team who will be up front after service and receive the gift of new life that Jesus offers. Friends, if you're here today and you haven't, what stops you from coming now? Paul, when he says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, he's not talking about making ourselves worthy. He's saying, you freely received the good news. You freely received without earning or deserving the gospel. Now live in a manner worthy of that gospel. Live in a way that demonstrates the truth of that gospel in your life. That reflects the reality of it to this world. That makes evident the glory of it to everybody who looks at you. Or as we spent the last two weeks discussing, as Paul says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it's God who works in you. As we talked about the last two weeks, we can't work for, work in, or work up our own salvation. But with God at work in us, we can work out what grace worked in. We can work out what grace has worked in. Salvation is a gift given and put in us, unworthy people, by the goodness of God. But the Christian life is working out what grace has worked in. It is living in a way worthy of the gospel, living in a way that works out the reality of who Jesus is and what he's done and is doing. It's it's living in a way that worthily reflects Jesus to this world. Just like we talked about last week, shine as lights in the world. Live in such a way that all see Jesus because you reflect him more and more and more. Live in a way worthy, reflective, shining to the world the trueness and the realness of the gospel. And friends, is that how we live? Is that how you live? Because Paul is telling the church in Philippi, and he's telling the church on Chestnut Street, this is what it means. But you might ask, well, what does that look like? I mean, it's one thing for you to tell us, Paul, to tell us that we're supposed to live a life worthy, but but it would be better to show us. So what does this look like? Well, you know, Paul has shown us. In fact, the beginning of chapter 2, you might remember the great Christ hymn that we have. Leading up to that, he writes chapter 2, verses 3 through 5, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Yours in Christ Jesus. Jesus is the example. A life worthy of the gospel is a life of humility. A life not lived for itself, a life lived and given for others, just like Jesus lived and gave himself for us. I don't know about you, but I kind of look at this and go, okay, Paul, well, that's all well and good. This is good, but there's a problem, Paul. I'm not Jesus. You may not have noticed, but I am not the perfect son of God. And neither are you. So what does it look like for me, an imperfect son of humans, to live a life worthy of the gospel? What does it look like for me, for you, to live worthy of the gospel, to have the same mind as Jesus Christ? What does it look like to humbly count others and their interests as more significant than myself? Paul, don't just tell me. Can you show me? Can you show me another example of what you're talking about? And Paul says, well, yes, I can. Paul shows us in the passage that Annie read for us today, two men. Two men who embody what he's been telling us. He goes, you want me to more than tell you, I'm going to show you. And if a picture is worth a thousand words, then church, what do we learn from the picture that Paul paints for us in the lives of these two men? First, we see Timothy. Now, back in chapter 16 of the book of Acts, we read about the start of the church in Philippi. Paul's writing this letter to the church in Philippi. And we read about the birth of the church in Acts 16. And when we look at Acts 16, we find out Timothy was there. He's been there from the very beginning of this church in Philippi. And in fact, if you continue reading through Acts, if Paul moved on to the next location. But it seems that Timothy stayed behind in Philippi to help the young church and to help it get established and help it grow. So the fact is, when Paul references Timothy, he's referencing somebody who was known by the church and who knew the church. Paul uh, or Timothy was well known to those in Philippi. And so look at verse 19 here. Paul's sending Timothy, a known friend, to bring the church in Philippi encouragement and news about Paul. And then he says, Timothy's going to turn around and bring back news to Paul about the church in Philippi. You guys know Timothy. I'm sending him to you. He's going to bring you news about me and encouragement. And then he's going to turn around and he's going to come back. Well, that sounds like a solid plan. But consider that Paul was imprisoned in Rome and Philippi was about 800 miles away. Now, this was a day when travel was not by plane, train or automobile, but on foot. There were no Motel 7's restaurants or law enforcement along the road. So travel was not only long, it was costly, it was arduous, and it was dangerous. So Timothy is going to risk commit himself and exhaust himself, making a long 1,600-mile round-trip journey to bring news of encouragement to the Philippian church and return with news of encouragement for Paul. That's crazy. Timothy loved the church in Philippi so much, he was willing to risk himself for their encouragement and for their well-being. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. Show and tell. Paul says, this is why I'm sending Timothy. Look at verses 20 and 21. He says, I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. Paul says, Timothy shows you What I've been telling you. This is what it looks like to be concerned not only for your own interests, but the interests of others. Because Timothy is concerned about your interests more than he is his own. Do you want me to show you humility? You remember Timothy, right? Timothy is the real deal. Paul says Timothy is genuinely concerned for your welfare. In fact, the Greek word translated here is concerned. Paul's going to use that exact same word again in chapter 4, verse 6 of this letter. Only there it says, do not be anxious about anything. So literally, Paul is saying, guys, Timothy is anxious for your well-being. He's anxious for your well-being. He's genuinely concerned. This isn't an act, and this isn't an obligation. This is humility. Timothy considers you and more significant, more important than himself. So much so that he's anxious for you. It's the same word that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 12. He writes that members of the church should have the same care for one another. Humble and genuine concern and care for the well-being of one another. Humble concern that risks itself, that inconveniences itself, that gives itself, that humbly considers the need of the other as more important than its own. Church, this is not lip service. This is life service. Timothy isn't just giving lip service, oh, I'm very concerned about you. It's his life service that shows the reality of what he says. Timothy doesn't just tell of his love, he shows his love. Because, church, we all know this. We know that lip service is easy. Life service is costly. Saying, I want to see the Midcoast reached with the gospel, that's easy for us to say. But life service is going to cost you your time, your privacy, and your convenience as you invite your neighbor over for dinner, as you serve the single mother, as you meet the unexpected and inconvenient need, as you unashamedly speak the gospel to all. Saying, I want to see young families and children come to our church is easy. Life service will cost you your time, convenience, and comfort as you serve in nursery or in children's church and as you make room for the restless little children in the sanctuary. Saying, I want the church to be healthy and strong. That's easy. Life service will cost you your pride to humble yourself before another person, to admit when you're wrong, to listen before you speak, to let go of bitterness, to work out disagreements rather than just walking away. Saying, I want my marriage to thrive. That's easy. But life service is going to cost you your pride as you count your husband's needs as more important than your own, as you sacrifice your desires to serve your wife's desires, As you seek to give more than you receive? As you commit to forgive even when he doesn't deserve it? As you decide to listen even when you think what she's saying is not that important? Lip service is easy. Life service is costly. And Timothy's life service shows what genuine humility looks like. And Paul says, hey, this. This is what I've been telling you about. Friends, could Paul hold up your life? He holds up Timothy's life. Could he hold up your life as such an example of humility? The way that he holds up Timothy right now. But Paul's not done with his show and tell. Having put forward Timothy as an example of humility that counts others as more important than itself, he now turns to Epaphroditus. Now the church in Philippi had actually sent Epaphroditus to Paul. They sent him to Paul with a gift for him while he was languishing in prison. Because again, like we said, in that time, if you were in prison, they weren't providing you three square meals a day. You were dependent upon family and friends to bring you what you needed while you were in prison. And all the way, 800 miles away, the church in Philippi hears that he's in prison, takes up a collection, and sends Epaphroditus and presumably other companions to bring that gift to Paul. However, we find in this passage that at some point on the journey, Epaphroditus became ill, really, really ill, near to death. And remember, in that day and age, they didn't have the medical facilities and the treatments that we have available to us today. So if somebody in that day was close to death, there was a good chance that they were not going to be making a U-turn. They were probably not coming back. So when one of his companions likely returned to Philippi with word that Epaphroditus was sick near to death, it grieved the church in Philippi because the church in Philippi probably assumed we've lost him. There's not much hope for him. And they were grieved thinking that their beloved Epaphroditus had likely died. And Paul writes, though, that God showed Epaphroditus mercy and healed him. And more than that, Paul says, this was a mercy to me too, because his love for Epaphroditus was so great that that death would have been a great personal grief to Paul as well. The problem is, this was the era before instant communication, so Epaphroditus couldn't just update his Facebook status feeling better. He couldn't tweet, text, or telephone. So no one in Philippi knows of God's merciful and miraculous healing. And those back in Philippi, they worry And they pray and they languish under the belief that their beloved Epaphroditus is likely dead. And that bothered Epaphroditus horribly. Look at verse 26. It says, He's been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard he was ill. Friends, it seems that Epaphroditus was more distressed about the Philippian church than he was about his own health. Because each of you should look not to his own interests, but also the interests of others. You know, when I was in college, I worked part-time with a, a church. I was a youth pastor at church about a half an hour from campus. And when I began working there, there was a single mother to one of the junior high boys in the group. Her name was Lynn. And Lynn was a wonderful woman, always so loving and giving. But what stands out to me most as I think about Lynn is near the end of my time there at the church, Lynn became very ill with a reoccurrence of breast cancer. And I remember visiting her, And she was lying in the hospital weak. She'd lost her vision because of the treatments. And she was there in a hospital bed. My intention in going and visiting her was to go and to give her encouragement and to pray for her. But you know what? It was only a few minutes after I'd arrived and exchanged some pleasantries. And I found that I was sitting there telling her all about myself. Because she kept asking me questions. And they weren't just surface questions like she genuinely wanted to know what was going on in my life and how I was doing. She was genuinely more concerned about me than she was about her own illness. She was much like Epaphroditus. That's humility. And do you know someone like that? I mean, you probably do. You probably know somebody like that. But the more painful and difficult question is, are you somebody like that? Are you becoming somebody like that? You see, Paul shows the church in Philippi and the church on Chestnut Street the example of Epaphroditus. And he goes, this is what I've been telling you about. This is humility that looks more to the interests and concerns of others than to its own. He shows what he's been telling. And more than that, church, to the best of our understanding, this man, Epaphroditus, he was just a lay person in the church. He wasn't a person in training like Timothy, who we heard Paul say was like a son with a father in the previous section. Epaphroditus was a person just like you. He was an ordinary member of the church who made himself available to God in an extraordinary way. You see, it might have been easy for the people in Philippi when Paul wrote this letter and they read and they go, oh yeah, Timothy humbly serves. Of course he does. He's Timothy. I mean, he's there training with you, Paul. But I don't train with you. I'm not Timothy. I could never be like Timothy. And then Paul goes, yeah, but consider Epaphroditus. He's one of you. You know him. And he's a lay person just like you. Not so easy to write him off. Paul lifts up Epaphroditus to show the church that what he's been telling them about humility, well, that's for all of us. It's not just for the leaders. It's for all of us to humbly consider the needs of others ahead of our own. Because, friends, humble service for the cause of Christ is not just for the professionals, but for all the people. The extraordinary call that we hear to humility is for every ordinary Christian. And the only question for us is, will we heed, or how will we heed this call? You know, it's interesting when we hear Paul talk about Epaphroditus, because when we look at verse 25, he actually gives Epaphroditus an introduction. Now, like I said, Epaphroditus is from Philippi, and Paul's writing back to Philippi about a guide that they know and sent, but he offers like an introduction to him. And it's a pretty impressive one. Look at verse 25. Paul says, I thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. Paul introduces Epaphroditus with five titles three of them in relationship to Paul and two in relationship to the church at Philippi. Paul says, Epaphroditus, this guy, he's my brother, my fellow worker, my fellow soldier. And this is encouraging. It's encouraging because Paul makes no distinction between himself, Timothy, or Epaphroditus. He says, we're all brothers, we're all workers, we're all soldiers. I might be an apostle, Timothy might be my protege, but we're all part of the same family, we're all doing the same work, and we're all in the same fight together. Because humility understands that it's about we more than about me. It's about we more than about me. Church, we are in this together. The church is not and cannot simply be a group of individuals who happen to come together at the same time and the same place. We can't be a bunch of individuals who happen to be going the same direction. Paul says, no, we're brothers and sisters and co-laborers and soldiers. Life is difficult. The work is hard. The battle is dangerous. So in humility, if we're going to stand, we stand together. Over 20 years ago, there were three prominent Christian songwriters who came together, Wes King, Phil Keggy, and Scott Dente. And they wrote a musical collaboration called Watch My Back. And it simply expresses, God knows that life is war, and if you live it all, you're going to do battle. But no matter what the weapons may be, and no matter which enemy may attack, well, it's you, my friend, that I would want to watch my back. And this is exactly what Paul is singing to the church in Philippi. He holds up Epaphroditus and he goes, In this battle, it's you, my friend, Epaphroditus, that I would want to watch my back. You have served with distinction, with humility. You are my brother, my co-worker, my fellow soldier. He holds up Epaphroditus to show an example of what it looks like. And he says, we're all in this together. I want a guy like Epaphroditus to cover my back. And I'm sending him back to you to cover your back. Friends. Is this the kind of thing that your fellow church members would say about you? This is the type of person who has and who I want to watch my back. Paul's described his relationship with Epaphroditus with these three titles, brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier. Then in verse 15, he describes the relationship with the Philippian church with just two more descriptors. He says, your messenger and minister to my need. Your messenger and minister to my need. Because church... Every one of us is a messenger and minister of the church. We are called to speak and to serve. We are called to do as Epaphroditus did with humility. The work is costly and dangerous. Epaphroditus risked his life for the sake of serving the church and the gospel mission. Paul even writes in verse 30, he nearly died. Verse 30, he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Because humble service doesn't consider its comfort, its convenience, its rights, its plans, its own life. None of those things is more important than the gospel mission of the church. And it makes me wonder. It makes me wonder if maybe you and I are stopped a little too easily. If maybe we strive a little too weakly. If maybe we surrender too quickly. If we give too little. Maybe we hide too readily. Maybe we are all guilty of choosing me over we. And when we fail to do, when we fail in humility to count others and to count our gospel mission together as more important than ourselves, what effect does that have on the church and the glory of Jesus? Like a path are we willing to risk ourselves for these people here? Are you willing to risk yourself for our gospel mission to mid-coast Maine and to the world beyond? In verse 29, Paul commends Epaphroditus to the church in Philippi. He says, receive Epaphroditus in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. Honor such men and women. You have to wonder. You have to wonder if this might have been a little bit of a barb, maybe a dig, at those who didn't go. It makes you wonder, were other people asked to go and didn't? Where other people asked to go, hey, we're we're looking for people to come from Philippi and travel the dangerous road to Rome and visit Paul in prison. And you wonder if others said, no, that mission's too dangerous. It's too costly. It's, It's too inconvenient. Did others claim their needs, their rights, their comfort, their plans were more important? Did others refuse essentially saying, send someone else, you know, someone like Epaphroditus. He should risk himself instead of me. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. And then honor the men and the women who do so. Paul says, I'm not telling you, I'm showing you. I'm showing you examples of true humility. Recognize it. Honor it. And, church, become it. For the sake of one another, for the sake of the mission, live worthy of the gospel. Live in humility towards one another and towards God Almighty. You might remember three weeks ago I shared the example of the African student named Sam who came to Taylor University in Indiana. And having been shown all the dorms, the president of the university asked him where he wanted to live. And his response was, if there's a room no one else wants, give that room to me. That's humility. Considering others more significant than yourselves. That's what Timothy said. That's what Epaphroditus said. This is the example of Christ himself. If there's a room no one wants, give it to me. If there's a job no one wants, give it to me. If there's a mission no one wants, I'll do it. If there's a person no one wants to invite, I'll invite them. If there's a decision of preference, I'll yield my rights. If there's a time that's less convenient, I'll take that time. If there's a hardship to be endured, I'll endure it. If there's a sacrifice to make, I'll make it. Choose me. Church, honor such men and women as Paul has shown us today. Honor them. But more importantly, more importantly, church, every one of us, what if by the power of the Spirit of Christ we might become such men and women in humility, counting others more significant than yourselves? We sang a prayer this morning. We bow our hearts. We bend our knees. Oh, Spirit, come make us humble. Will you continue praying that prayer this week? And if you do, how might God answer? If you pray that prayer, what might God not just tell us, but church, what might he show us? Let's pray. Father. Spirit, come make us humble. Thank you for the example of those in Scripture who followed, of those in Scripture who served, of those in Scripture who gave, and thank you most of all for the example of Your Son Jesus Christ, who humbled Himself, becoming obedient unto death, even death on a cross, and now is exalted to Your right hand and given the name above every name, O oh, Father. Come make us humble like Christ. And Lord, may your name be exalted above every other name in our lives, through our lives, and by our lives, now and forevermore. Amen.